0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. This is Robert Lamb, and this is Joe McCormick, and we're back with part two of our series on tears. We figured out by today this is definitely going to be at least three parts because there's just so much. They're, you know, the, the tears make an ocean, and and uh, and they don't stop coming. So, so there will be at least one more. <laughs> yeah, there's really there's almost too much because uh, sometimes
1: we look into things and we're like, okay, well, what is the what's the mythological? ramifications of this. Uh, are there any treatments of this in mythology or religion? And with something like Tears, the answer is is yes. Every religion, every mythology, mm-hmm. pretty much, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it'd be, it'd be, you know, it's easy to get lost sort of just, tra- you know, chasing some of these ideas down and then trying to figure out what which ones are worth talking about, which ones are not. And then of course, from the scientific point of view there, uh, we've already rolled through, I, I think, some of the science of
0: Tears and we have a bit more to cover today. Well, we've got a lot more to cover on the science of tears. So in the last episode, uh, we talked some ab- uh, about some of the basic uncontroversial biological facts about tears, you know, like basal tears and reflex tears, what they're made of and and how uh, how they're secreted from the lacrimal glands uh, and what they normally do. But the big question, the big sort of mystery about tears is is this question of human emotional tears. Humans appear to be the only animal that sheds tears as a response to emotional states. And so one of the huge questions is why, what is the biological purpose and thus what is the evolutionary justification unique to our species of liquid coming out of your eyes in response to feeling emotions? As we talked about in the last episode, uh, you know, because this is not a settled question, there are just there are tons of uh, hypotheses that have been p- put forward over the years. We talked in the last episode about several very unlikely ones. For example, uh, tears being a byproduct of an alleged aquatic ape past for human beings. Uh, this is. Almost certainly not correct because we, we don't put much stock in the aquatic ape hypothesis. Another one is this idea that maybe tears are somehow derived from a conditioned response of our ancient ancestors to getting smoke in their eyes at funeral pyres after they started controlling fire. Uh, there are several reasons we talked about in the last episode why that that's probably not correct either. So over the next couple of episodes, we're going to be exploring a bunch more of the existing hypotheses about the evolutionary purpose of emotional tears, and I think you can sort these into three broad categories. Uh, the first being there there is no purpose; maybe they're just some kind of byproduct. The second being the purpose is intrapersonal, meaning internal to the body of the person who's crying. And then the third would be that the purpose is interpersonal, meaning that tears serve some kind of external or relational function. Now, on the score of uh, no-purpose explanations, here's a kind of surprising fact. Apparently, Charles Darwin actually believed that emotional tears Served No purpose of their own, but rather were a byproduct of other purposeful adaptations, uh, notably facial expressions and vocal expressions. In his 1872 book, The Expression of Emotions in Man and Animals, uh, Darwin wrote, quote, The shedding of tears appears to have originated through reflex action from the spasmodic contraction of the eyelids, together perhaps with the eyeballs becoming gorged with blood during the act of screaming. (laughs) Therefore, weeping probably came on rather late in the line of our descent, and this conclusion agrees with the fact that our nearest allies, the anthropomorphous apes, do not weep. Uh, so the second observation there being that, that the other apes that we're most closely related to, they do produce tears, of course, basal tears in their eyes and irritant tears, but they don't uh, produce emotional tears. So that observation is correct. But I, I think Darwin's inference in the, in the first half of that paragraph there is almost definitely wrong. His idea is that, well, when we get upset we cry out with our voices and this makes like blood rush to the face because you're screaming and maybe all the blood sort of makes your eyes swell. And then there are also, uh, when you're upset, there are facial muscle contractions, like involuntary reflexive contractions of things like the eyelids. And this just sort of squeezes tears out as an accidental byproduct. I, I, I don't think I can go with Darwin on this one. This sounds really wrong.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, on one hand, we've already talked about the, the various sounds and, uh, and screaming-type uh, uh, effects that you see with, with other primates. I mean, if you've been to a, a zoo or you've been to a, a natural environment where primates make their home, you may have heard this. Like they, are, they can create the kind of screaming that, I guess, could theoretically cause the eyeballs to become gorged with blood. Uh, so, yeah, that doesn't seem to have much weight to it.
0: Yeah, it's not that it would be impossible for contractions of the facial muscles to cause tears. I I do think this may even be an explanation. Uh, I've seen this invoked as an explanation for why sometimes your eyes get teary when you yawn. Like when you yawn, that may put some kind of pressure on the lacrimal glands that causes mm-hmm. some excessive tearing, which, you know, it leads to blurring of the vision after you're done yawning, and then you might need to wipe your eyes. Maybe a similar thing with coughing. So it's it's not impossible that contractions of the facial muscles – could cause some tearing. It just seems like the tears being produced by the lacrimal glands during an emotional episode, or something that exceeds this this kind of tearing. Um, and uh, and I, I don't know. Uh, most researchers who focus on this area r- really do think that this is not a plausible explanation. It seems pretty clear that. Tears are a true adaptive trait that serve their own functions and function independently from just uh, the contractions of the facial muscles. Because another question would be like, well, OK, it, if this is true for humans, how come other like apes that we're closely related to don't also cry when they contract their facial muscles in, in emotional episodes? Yeah.
1: yeah, Like I say, it seems like we just have we have more evidence to the contrary at this point.
0: Yeah. So it seems like tears are probably purposeful, a true adaptive trait of some kind. So the next category would be, well, maybe tears have some kind of intrapersonal purpose. They, they do something within the body, within the self. Uh, and there are many ways of approaching this, but to cite a characteristic example of this type of explanation, I wanted to look at the detoxification hypothesis. Uh, this is one that used to be pretty popular but has really fallen out of favor. Historically, I think this is one of the most popular hypotheses for for explaining the function of tears. It was advanced by the American biochemist William Fry in the 1980s. I think it was uh, first published in 1985, I believe. And Fry's reasoning went like this, okay? Uh when humans are under stress, you're having some intense emotional, you know, bout of emotion, there is a buildup of potentially toxic substances in the blood. So you know, think about all the different uh, stre- effects of stress you learn about. You know, When, when you're really distressed, your, your bloodstream floods with cortisol. You're, you're freaked out. You can almost kind of like feel it moving through your body, or at least uh, maybe it's an illusion, but I feel like I can. Like when I'm having a stressful experience, there's almost a, a, a somatic sensation of the, the spreading of this kind of like uh, 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 aggravating numbness. Mm-hmm. And Fry posited that when this happens, when your body fills up with all these uh, potentially uh, toxic contaminants or horm- stress hormones, things like that, the body cleanses these excess uh, contaminants by purging them through the tear response, with the lacrimal glands acting like kidneys do for the urinary system. So, under this hypothesis, you are you are peeing out your eyes when you are really stressed.
1: Yeah, and I can I can understand why this idea uh, you know had had some support behind it because I mean on one level yes we can look to the kidneys and the urinary system and we can see uh, we can see something like this but to your point the feeling of all of this welling up inside of us and then the uh, what often feels like a release and I have to stress though that. When, when you get it, look at different accounts of weeping, and depending on the circumstances of the weeping, such as like solitary weeping versus public weeping, and then that's going to depend on the culture and the scenario in which it's taking place. Um, you do see a lot of accounts where people say, "Okay, I felt better after I wept, after you know all this built up and then was released." Uh, so. We could under, we could we can imagine where like looking at this idea of what the urinary system is doing, thinking about how we feel before and after an emotional outburst, uh, we could easily fall in line with thinking like, yeah, yeah, those, that, those, that was the, to- the toxins building up in my body, and I am letting the toxins out. Weeping is just the body releasing the poison.
0: Yeah, th- yeah, this is having a sort of like chemical read on the feeling of catharsis people uh, sometimes experience from weeping. Uh, now, of course, I should say before I move on that this hypothesis does not have much support uh, among any modern tier response researchers I was reading. It seems like the evidence for it is not good. It has been strongly pushed back against. But like you're saying, it does have this intuitive appeal because there is a widespread belief in the Healing Power of Tears, I actually I came across a stat that I found astounding. Uh, so I was reading an article in Time Magazine by Mandy Oaklander from 2016 that was about – it interviewed several different researchers who work on the subject of tears. And it cited uh, one analysis that looked at a bunch of articles about crying in the media over uh, a period of more than 100 years, so going way back – and it found that 94% of them described crying as in some way good for the mind and body or and or described holding back tears as bad for the mind and body and yet despite this gut feeling that people seem to have i mean i feel this way too it's it's a common belief uh this 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 gut feeling that tears bring catharsis and relief and they heal you they're good for you they heal the mind and body Uh, Evidence for this is apparently pretty scarce on the ground. The same article by Oaklander and Times cites a a researcher named Jonathan Rotenberg, who's a professor of psychology at the University of South Florida, uh, who studies emotion and has done work with tears. And Rotenberg says that these claims about the healing power of, of tears are basically a fable. There's just not much evidence that crying has strong, measurable benefits to health, mental or physical or that it predictably brings relief or catharsis. I mean, obviously, it does bring a feeling of relief sometimes. I think we all know that from experience, but maybe not as consistently as we tend to infer.
1: Yeah, well, one example, because some some of us might be, you know, you might wonder, well, okay, what's an example of tears not having a beneficial effect? Uh, one example that was brought up, I think this was in Holy Tears, was that if, if uh, some people, when uh, queried on this, they mentioned that if they are, Weeping out of a feeling of loneliness, and they are doing so in a solitary setting, that they may feel worse afterwards. Yeah, uh, which which I think is interesting, and I think that can potentially shed light on some other theories, or or potentially provide um, some possible evidence for uh, supporting other hypotheses concerning the the reason that we have tears, the the function of tears in human uh, in the human condition.
0: Right. Well, I'm going to get to this in a minute, but I, I think this would be one of the many things that I would interpret as, as possibly pointing to tears serving a primarily interpersonal function in, in communication and signaling between people. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You could interpret it as
1: meaning, well, you know, that you did not feel better because the the act of weeping is
0: supposed to be communicating something to another human being. Yeah, and it, it uh, is supposed to elicit a response from somebody. Yes. But okay, so so that addresses the question of like f- subjective feelings of relief. You know, sometimes people feel feelings of relief after crying. Sometimes people don't. Uh, but the other half of this, this intrapersonal interpretation, you know, does does crying do something for you Make to make your body uh, better in some way, to give you some kind of internal benefit? The other question would be like, are there measurable ways that crying can be found to improve well-being, apart from just the, the uh, sort of immediate aftermath where you might feel a feeling of relief or not? Uh, what about other types of measures of physical and mental well-being? Well, there was one study I came across that looked into this question, and it was by uh, Hesdorfer Vingerhoutz. Uh, that's, that's Ad Wingerhoots, who I mentioned in the previous episode and who will come up several more times in this and Michael R Trimble in 2018 called social and psychological consequences of not crying possible associations with psychopathology and therapeutic relevance and uh, basically the authors were trying to look into the question of okay so the, um what if you find people who report that they essentially never cried after a certain period in their life they Feel like they either lost the ability to cry or just at some point in their life they just stopped crying and just don't cry anymore. Um, can we compare their outcomes in terms of standard measures of well being and social functioning compared to people who do cry on a regular basis?
1: So they interviewed
0: Ozzy Osbourne
1: because <laughs> no more tears.
0: That would have been good, but no. Uh, so they say, uh, quote, study participants included 475 people who reportedly lost the capacity to cry. And 179 normal control criers. Applied measures uh, assessed crying, well-being, empathy, attachment, social support, and connection with others. And the authors had hypothesized that people who don't cry would have lower well-being and poor social functioning compared to people who do cry. Uh, And actually, that's not exactly what they found. So they did find some differences. Uh, So people who did not cry, uh, on average, had fewer social connections and less social support and also, uh, had somewhat less empathy, uh, though of course that's not going to apply to everybody. And it's worth noting that those things I just mentioned aren't necessarily a result of not crying, but could maybe be causes of not crying or could maybe be correlates with similar underlying causes. Um, but what they did, uh, what they did not find was indications of lower well-being. In And ter- it actually found that, uh, People who cry and people who don't cry were about the same in terms of of psychological measures of well-being. So, you know, no more measurable depression, anxiety, and so forth. Now, studies like this don't mean that we can be sure tears serve no intrapersonal purposes. You you certainly can't rule it out. Tears may well serve some kind of purpose within the self, within the body. But personally, I've become pretty well convinced while researching for these episodes that the primary adaptive purpose of emotional tears is interpersonal, meaning it's external, it's social and relational, and that tears are primarily for communicating something to and affecting the behavior of other members of our species, other people.
1: Yeah, I, I, after reading through "Holy Tears," I, I, I also feel like this is a very strong hypothesis uh, in how they discuss the role of tears and religious rites and rituals. But, but one area that I do have questions about would be uh, the weeping during media, um, Mm -hmm. like during a film or something, you know? Uh, I wonder if that is the same, like when we weep during motion pictures, is that a communal experience or is that a personal experience? Uh, Are we actually trying to communicate something to other people viewing the film?
0: Oh, well, I mean, it wouldn't have to be, uh, it wouldn't have to be intentional on your part. I mean, weeping Mm -hmm. is often involuntary. It's usually involuntary. So, weeping at a movie I think could very well be not something you're trying to do because you are intentionally communicating with say the movie or with other people you're watching the movie with. But instead it's a standard kind of response to, um, empathetic connection with drama you are seeing unfold and, and your brain can't really tell the difference between drama in media versus drama that would be going on with people in your life. So know. an adaptation that arises because it's useful with some, some kind of social signaling function for other people also gets hijacked when you're watching a movie about people. That's true. So
1: basically what we're talking about here would be, it, it, it's like the old example of the train coming at the screen and early moviegoers like freaking out, like, ah, the, the, the train is approaching. You jump because it is, uh, it is something that, it is stimuli that should cause you to jump and run away. But the tearful scene, the emotional s- scene in a, in a motion picture, that is something that is, uh, that is more subtle. And we're just going to respond to it as if it is something that we should perhaps communally be responding to.
0: Yeah, I think the same way that a a scary movie partially simulates the feeling of real danger or that a romantic movie can cause some kind of romantic arousal. I mean, it's all like uh, there's a vicarious uh, uh, interaction with what's going on in the media as if it were taking place in real life.
1: Uh, For a moment, I'd like to come back to something we were talking about earlier, the um, uh, the, the hypothesis that there is a purging of toxins going on. (laughs) Uh, during weeping, Uh, because this reminds me of another topic we've discussed in the show before, sweating. Uh, You also see... Some of this, um, some of this line of thinking, uh, being employed with sweating, sometimes with exercise, but I've seen it particularly with with sauna traditions. Uh, Why do people feel better after a sauna? What is a sauna doing? And you do see this. Sometimes there is this argument: Well, when you're sweating, you're uh, in the sauna, you're releasing toxins. but if, if memory serves, the situation is though when you look at like how much is shed via sweating versus how much is truly shed via urination, um, there's just a, a huge uh, gulf between those numbers. Uh, yeah. So it, it doesn't really match up, but it, but it becomes difficult to untangle uh, this knot you know, concerning how much is purged via sweating, how much, is, how much would need to be purged to make a meaningful impact on your physiology, and how much we feel or believe we have purged. Having gone through the experience,
0: uh, yeah, it's funny. I'm also skeptical of the idea that this is why people feel a relief in, in after sweating or being in the sauna. I would expect probably it has more to do with I don't know the the pleasurable hormones that people get after you know exercise or or something like that. Maybe uh, endorphins or something of that nature. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know. I'm just spitballing there, but uh, but yeah, I would be skeptical of that. And it's funny that what you say is. Um, parallel to some arguments that are made against the detoxification hypothesis of tears, because uh, much like with your sweating example, there's probably just not enough of the stuff in the tears to really make a major difference in the body. Yeah, but 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 in the next episode, I think we're going to get more into the direct formulations of some of the the main contending hypotheses for for explaining the biological evolution of tears. Uh, that that'll be more in the next episode. But I did want to talk about some some broad observations. In the idea of tears as an external or interpersonal uh, adaptation, something that is that serves a relational function. And one piece of evidence that seemed somewhat convincing to me that tears serve an external and communicative purpose is that people just automatically, when they observe tears, interpret them as conveying information about the emotional states of the person who's crying, and it's not just that you look at a person who's who's uh, crying and you say that person is sad. The tears themselves seem to convey very important information. And this was illustrated in some research I was reading about in a 2010 NPR article by Alison Aubrey called Teary-Eyed Evolution, Crying Serves a Purpose. And this featured an interview with a researcher named Randolph Cornelius, who was a professor of psychology at Vassar College. Uh, and I'm citing this research in particular because it came with what I thought was a very useful visual aid. Um, so, so Cornelius, the psychologist, he, he, he is arguing that tears are useful because they convey information. And his research did something pretty clever it took photographs of people who were crying and then digitally manipulated them to remove the tears. So you'd have the same face with the same expression when the person is crying, except without any tears visible in the eyes or on the cheeks. And what the study found is that uh, people rated the same faces without tears as much more ambiguous. Uh, People consistently interpret tearful faces as sad, and they interpret them as having stronger emotional value, but people have a lot more difficulty inferring the feelings of the, those same faces without the tears and so uh, to quote from Cornelius as, as cited in this article, he says quote, "Tears also narrow the range of emotions people think the models are experiencing. Tearful people are mostly seen as experiencing emotions in the sadness family, sadness, grief mourning and so forth. And Rob, I really, once I looked at these images, it, it really hit home for me because yeah, so it, it'll have two faces side by side. One is a crying face and the other is the same exact face, but photoshopped to have the tears removed and the, the faces without tears. Whereas the, there's like one in the middle of a man crying with tears rolling down his cheeks and he looks very sad. And in the picture right next to him without the tears the same expression looks possibly kind of like smug or defiant
1: yeah i thought kind of menacing like without yeah. the tears or the tears removed he kind of looks like like he's thinking I'm, i might just beat you up but in the first one it's it's clear this man is has been watching a sad football movie and yes. is weeping openly uh there's one that you shared above this of a child or i think it's a child yeah, looking a child. up um And with the tears are removed, it seems like they're perhaps just looking at a bird flying through the air. But with the tears, it's like they are looking up at a crucifixion.
0: Yeah, yeah. The same face without the tears could be interpreted as kind of like, um, I I don't know, maybe concerned, but also displaying a possibly creepy kind of interest in something. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, at least to me, I, I immediately from these images can see the informational value of tears. They... Radically reduce the ambiguity in interpreting somebody else's facial expression and and, and suddenly you're not wondering like what is this person thinking you immediately read them as like as kind of sad and vulnerable and helpless and not dangerous whereas the same face without the tears is like I don't know what's up with this person.
1: (laughs) Now, of course, this is all. This, this all becomes more complicated when we 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 think about some of the exceptions to this the, this rule that pop up. Uh, re, you know, regarding why the person could be uh, teary eyed. You know, perhaps they have some sort of a, a tear gland uh, situation going on, mm-hmm. or perhaps uh, there is some sort of irritant in the air. Um, something of that nature. Uh, perhaps their their sinuses are uh, are bothering them, or they just yawned. Uh, but if you're mm-hmm. just looking at them, you're you're going to instantly go to that something something
0: powerful or bad has happened, and this person may need comforting. You know, this got me thinking about um, a- another way that tears might work. This is not something that I found uh, advocated in in any research, though somebody might have put this forward, and I haven't read about it yet um but this would be uh the idea that what if tears are useful as an honest signal of emotions uh that could have evolved as a response to the evolution of deceit hmm. so uh so so what i'm imagining here is you know humans are are complex social animals managing complex social relationships and human brains are complex enough That humans can lie about what they feel, and they can lie about who and what they care about. But because tears are difficult to fake, I wonder if maybe tears evolved as an honest signal of our true motivating feelings, who and what we actually care about and how we feel about things. And thus I wonder if possibly in that way they could be adaptive because they make us more trustworthy. A person who cries about something is less likely to be lying about what their feelings about that thing are.
1: Uh, this, of course, makes my mind instantly go to actors. Uh, mm-hmm. But that, I mean, this kind of a whole discussion in and of itself because you get into how is the actor summoning the tears? Are they engaging with with actual tearful memories, or you know, a deep reading of the script, and so forth? But ultimately, the result is when you watch a film. And the actor is summoning tears it It makes anything that's going on on the, on the screen more believable, yeah uh, no matter how poor the screenplay, no matter how weird the lighting, if the actor is is summoning actual tears in their performance like that that gives it a leg up.
0: yeah, and I think it's worth noting that like most people, like some people can cry on command, but most people would have a hard time doing that like it's not easy to do mm-hmm
1: unless you have that that chunk of onion in your uh in your right.
0: handkerchief right is that the old hector's trick, yeah, I guess so, so yeah, maybe it has something to do with the evolution of deceit, but anyway that, that's just sort of like a, a weird thought that popped into my head uh, maybe that'll connect to some of the hypotheses that we that we discuss in more detail in the next part, but I, I wanted to talk about another study that was interesting about ways that tears might be uh, useful for interpersonal signaling and behavior manipulation. And this would be something that's not focused on conveying information that's perceived consciously, like what we were talking about with looking at tears on people's faces a minute ago. This would be operating at a subconscious level on the basis of chemical signaling or or chemo signaling. This next example is also good because from what I can tell, this is a study that led to some maybe very misleading headlines uh, in in popular coverage. Uh, But anyway, so some studies in mice have found that behaviorally relevant chemo signals in tears, uh, so these would not be emotional tears because mice don't shed emotional tears. These would just be uh, regular basal or, or reflex tears. These chemo signals in mice include pheromones that... Uh, For example, can do things like make male mice more attractive as mates, or there can be chemo signals in juvenile mice that prevent adults from attempting unwanted mating behaviors with with those mice so that they can have kind of uh, discouraging unwanted behaviors in other mice. And picking up on that research, uh, there were some uh, scientists who in the year 2011 looked into whether there could be similar chemo signals in human tears. And so this led to a study by uh, Shani Gelstein et al. published in Science called Human Tears Contain a Chemo Signal. Now, I want to be clear that I'm often kind of skeptical about uh, – I'm not quite sure why this is, but I think maybe because there have been a few studies along these lines that have later – turned out to be not well-founded. But uh, I'm kind of skeptical about studies finding big macro behavioral effects of imperceptible smells and stuff in humans. So I would definitely want this verified by a good bit of independent replication. But if this the finding of the study is correct, what it found is that emotional tears in humans tend to contain uh, chemicals that change the behavior of adults, especially adult men, possibly making them less aggressive and less likely to experience sexual arousal, maybe making them more likely to, say, uh, provide care behaviors. The study measured this by having people uh, smell tears that were from, from human donors and And they found that tears that were produced by women who were experiencing negative emotions, when men sniffed those tears, they had reduced levels of testosterone and they had reduced self-rated sexual arousal and reduced physiological measures of arousal. And so what some headlines did with this is basically they went with like the the sexual angle and said that, oh, yeah, uh, tears will make you less attractive
1: Yeah, that feels like a very uh, specific misread of, of what they're trying to say here.
0: Right, right. So actually, I, I was reading, there was a section that covered this in that uh, article by Mandy Oaklander uh, that I mentioned a minute ago. And it it actually went back and interviewed one of the authors of that that study in science, Noam Sobel, who said, okay, yeah, it really generated some sort of uh, misleading headlines that, that had the wrong takeaway from it. Because even though they did find that, uh, at least within this one study, emotional tears lowered sexual arousal in men. He thinks that the, the real interpret, the correct interpretation of this finding is that, uh, is that the, the chemo signals in this may be reducing aggression, uh, and that, that men's tears may also have the same effect as women's tears. And so the main takeaway would not be that, like, tears are unattractive. It would be that, like, tears, if this finding is correct, serve to sort of, like, put other, Biological uh, drives on hold, and sort of put uh, put the men who smell them into a kind of uh, caregiving mode.
1: Now, one thing, one possible issue that this raises for me, though, is that tears are also shed in rage. You know, so uh, one can easily imagine a scenario where if if one warrior is coming at another, and one warrior. Uh, it, their eyes are streaming with tears and their their face is snarling like a beast and they're coming at you with battle axe. Uh, is, does that mean the other warrior is going to suddenly let their guard down and and have this emotional outpouring for the other warrior because tears are present? Uh, like, that doesn't really match up for me.
0: No, and it, uh, well, I mean, sure, if, if it does work this way, it certainly wouldn't be that deterministic. It would just be an influence, not like a, you know, overriding every other consideration a person could have. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I I would say that uh, you can imagine even in a context of of people, of, uh, you know, warriors and killers, it seems harder to enact violence maybe on somebody who is crying, like that crying does serve pretty often to sort of neutralize aggression.
1: Yeah, but but then again, I guess we have to remember that it does not occur in a vacuum. Like, we have the the human facial communication array. We have uh, body posture, uh, and you know that is also augmented by uh, use or or non use of of tools and weapons. Like there's, there are there are a number of other signals that would be in place in addition to the tears. Even if the tears had this ability to augment uh, what's going on with the with the, our facial features.
0: Yeah, I mean we're constantly. Processing all kinds of signals and information tiers would be one input among many. You know, they might have an influence in one way, but, you know, you you might be able to ignore that influence if you've got strong motivations. Uh,
1: In all of this, I I can't help but be reminded of an old Halloween uh, Disney cartoon. Perhaps you've seen it in which there is a rampaging gorilla and uh, and uh, Donald Duck is there and the uh, uh, the Huey, Dewey and Louie are there. And they're running around being chased by this gorilla. They're uh, they're able to eventually subdue the gorilla using tear gas. Tear gas, of course, has does not have an emotional context. It, has, it is an, it is an irritant. Uh, but in this cartoon, when the gas of the tear when the tear gas reaches the eyes of both duck and ape, it produces tears that are then instantly emotional tears. Hmm. Um, yeah. Confusing so, the categories, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's some, some some wonderful category confusion there.
0: So anyway, I I'm not sure what I think about the idea of tears as chemo signals, though I do feel pretty well convinced that they're some kind of signal, and it might be a signal of the more uh, the more straightforward kind that we were talking about before where Observing them has some pretty reliable cognitive effects. People see the tears and react in a certain way, and and there are some indications also that um that tears may be uh, emotional tears may be specially designed to be seen. Like I was reading in one of these articles, um, a finding that has alleged that emotional tears tend to contain higher protein content than um. Uh, the, than just like basilar reflex tears, though that I'm not sure how well that finding holds up because I might have uh, read that that had, been, uh, that had been contradicted as well. But if that is the case, um, one hypothesized explanation for that is that the additional protein content of the tears causes them to be thicker, Meaning that they take longer to roll down the cheek. So, emotional tears, if this is true, would be more visible than just say, like your eyes overflowing with tears because they're irritated. Those thinner tears might just sort of wash away, whereas the emotion, the thicker emotional tears hang on the cheek and sort of stick to your skin, and other people can see them more easily.
1: Now, this is very interesting because it brings to mind uh, two different things. One, uh, what happens when there is a makeup of some sort uh, in place on the face, uh, and you can see this, you know, across the spectrum, any kind of uh, uh, makeup that might be worn on the face, especially for some sort of ritual scenario. And then, if there is weeping, uh, it has the potential to make the the tears all the more apparent. Mm-hmm. This also reminds me of something I was reading in Holy Tears. Apparently, there have been accounts of um, of, uh, of you know, there are various accounts of weeping blood. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in, in cultures. And there was, uh, there's this possibility that there, uh, there are some mourners that have been reported uh, to have uh, engaged in rituals in ancient Turkey where they would score their faces uh, during the, the ritual or before the ritual. And anyway, the, the result would be that you would have blood and tears mixed together, uh, thus oh, wow. sort of augmenting the tears with blood and, or, or, or the reverse, augmenting the blood with tears causing this, this increased flow
0: well, yeah, and playing on the intuition that tears are, are meaningful, and they're meaningful if they are seen. They're meant to be visually seen. And, of course, the one way to hide them is you do your crying in the rain, right? Like in uh, the Everly <laughs> Brothers song. Oh, okay. You know, there's one observation uh, that I came across that struck me as really interesting. This was not from a scientific study. I actually just uh heard this in a video I was watching. So Vox has a, a video um, series called Glad You Asked that's hosted by somebody, uh, somebody named Joss Fong. And they had an episode on tears. And there was a part in the episode where somebody observed that tears are the only body fluid that doesn't tend to gross other people out. And that struck me as really interesting. Uh so the idea of getting somebody else's urine or feces, blood, sweat, spit, mucus, etc., any of that, getting any of that on you. Most of the time people would find all of these options disgusting. The the uh the suggestion here is that tears are the only fluid secreted by the body that doesn't usually provoke a disgust reaction in others and i don't know of any empirical research to back up this observation it might exist but it does ring true to me and it strikes me as as notable
1: hmm yeah yeah um i mean it's hard it's hard to reflect on any actual experience with that i feel like any time that i've gotten say my son's tears on me it, it, it's almost always been uh, if they're emotional tears, then mm-hmm. there's going to be mucus as well, you know. Right. So, <laughs> in, in that case, it's like, yeah, I probably need to change shirts. Uh, but, but, but it, once it, you're a
0: parent, you get all kinds of fluids on you, and that just, I, I think, you know. Oh yeah, yeah. From okay.
1: yeah, you, urine and everything else. But, um,
0: I guess with the, you know with the with the
1: tears, I can I can under, understand that. Yeah, I can certainly match it, especially when I think about the time that he shot tears into my mouth. Um, uh, oh yeah. By virtue of his Tyrannosaurus situation at the time, yeah, I, I was not. It was more interesting as opposed to to a gross out moment. Um, I also was looking around because I was thinking, well, maybe there's some notable exception in human culture, and I thought I had some, like, some flag came up in my my memory of some fate faint example of something where maybe tears had some sort of a negative connotation maybe involved with, say, like, um, you know, the the, the purging of bodily energies or the imbalance of energies, but uh, I couldn't find anything. Maybe I'll find something and we'll share in the future, but it, it does seem to be pretty universal. And even then, it would not, I don't know if it would necessarily be that the, the tears themselves have any kind of unclean aspect to them. It would be something about uh, like the, the, the deeper body or, the, the, or some sort of a alleged energy system of the body. In the same way, where if, if, you, if you might, and, and I don't, I'm not saying this is fair, but if you were judgmental of somebody for crying during Space Jam, um, an what? adult crying during space jam, you might, vo- you might well argue that this, that they shouldn't have done so, uh, or that they didn't have proper emotional r- reason to do so, but you wouldn't think anything less of the actual substance of their tears. Like keep those space jam tears away from me. Do not let them soil my body. I wouldn't trust anybody who did not cry during space jam. <laughs> there you go. Maybe they're the holiest the tears of all. Yeah. As long as we're, we're off the subject and reaching the end of the podcast, what, have you, what do you make of an old pinhead saying, um, you know, no, no tears, it's a waste of good suffering? I always oh, felt yeah. that... Save
0: your tears. <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah, I always felt like that was a bit off-brand. Like, what, do you, what, do you, what are you expecting to happen? Like, I thought pain and suffering was your whole bag, but suddenly, like, crying's not allowed? Yeah, at what point does he think it's okay for the tears to begin? Yeah, seems kind of closed-minded of, yeah. of pinhead.
0: Well, it is interesting that uh, in the context of the movie, these would be – if it's Hellraiser, these would be anticipatory tears, right? Tears that are uh, in in response to terror at the idea of suffering yet to come. Yeah. And yet there are some people who have uh, put forward models of emotional tears – that sort of say the opposite, that say tears are a uh, sort of step-down signal. I'm not sure I'm convinced by this, actually, but uh, it at least has been alleged. I could imagine a scenario where,
1: okay, if you're going to think long and hard about the
0: Cenobites
1: of of Clive Barker's Hellraiser, you could say, well, they're all about actual senses, actual senses of, of pleasure and pain, and therefore the emotional context of pleasure and pain might be completely lost on them. Because, yeah, they're all about like sticking hooks in things and uh, and so forth. And, uh-huh. uh, and the tightening of leather, not so much about uh, anticipating the pain or reflecting on the pain. So, I don't know. Now I'm back backtracking. Maybe it is totally on brand. But may- maybe it would have been more impactful if, if Pinhead had been… Said something like just to express that he doesn't even understand what's happening. What are you doing? Why? Why is there liquid coming out of your face? Liquid shouldn't be coming out of your body unless it is a response to
0: direct physical stimuli. Since I mentioned it, I figured I might as well explain the idea of the, the sort of step-down theory of tears. Um, so I was reading about this in uh, an article in the Washington Post from April 2016 by Miri Kim called The Science of a Good Cry. And this involved an interview with an emeritus professor of psychology at Temple University named Jay Efren, who had advocated what was called in this article a two-stage theory of emotional tears which would be kind of similar to the two-stage theory of laughter, which posits that maybe laughter functions when tension is first raised by the setup of a joke and then suddenly lowered by the punchlines that step down to the lower level of tension under this theory that causes the laughter as the result of a joke. Uh, The idea here is that maybe crying works in a similar fashion. Uh, So I want to read a quote from this article that's explaining a friend's view here. Uh, Quote, Uh, People experience a crying fit when something happens to first spark high anxiety or distress, followed by a moment of recalibration or release. For instance, a child that loses his mother at the grocery store begins by frantically searching for her, getting more and more worried as he scans the aisles. Suddenly, he hears her call his name from behind, sees her comforting face, and promptly bursts into tears. And uh, and uh, it goes on to explain how this could maybe also work for things that appear to be tears of joy. Um, maybe like while you're planning a wedding for your child, you know, there there's sort of a high anxiety, high stress uh, preparation stage. But then during the ceremony itself, it's kind of like everything is culminated and then there's a release of tension and then you cry. Uh, so according to this, this hypothesis here, emotional tears would occur not really at the onset of distress, but at the onset of relief from distress. I'm not sure how convinced I am by this. I'm not sure how well it lines up with actual instances of crying, but it does seem to be somewhat corroborated at least by um, what parts of the uh, nervous system seem to be activated, like uh, crying does seem to be more associated with activation of the parasympathetic nervous system as opposed to the sympathetic nervous system so the sympathetic nervous system is what's usually associated with high stress conditions fight or flight goosebumps all that kind of thing and then uh, usually when you when you're done with a sympathetic nervous system response you know the the high stress has subsided you shift back down into activation of the parasympathetic nervous system which is often known as the relax and restore system or the rest and digest system. It's the stuff that's uh, normal involuntary activities of the body that are happening when you're not in a state of, of heightened stress or anxiety. And this is the system that crying seems to be more associated with. Uh, so, so that would be an interesting indication in favor of this, this two stage uh, uh, emotional tear theory, but still I'm not sure how correctly the theory rings just with experience of when crying happens and how it happens.
1: Yeah, I mean, it just it becomes so complex when you start trying to tease apart, uh, you know, uh, emotional and physical responses to, you know, often, you know, complex stimuli. That is, you know, just some the kind of thing that you know Pinhead's not going to understand. Right. It's, a,
0: it's just a it's a it's a tangled knot of human emotion. Oh, we did we did get set off on that whole thing by Pinhead, didn't we?
1: We did. We did. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to go ahead and close out this part two of our look at tears. We are going to come back with part three, and uh, I'm I'm excited to get into some of the the mythological and religious stuff a bit more in that one. Uh, But there will be a short gap. We have a special interview episode uh, that we're excited about that's going to air Tuesday. And then the following Thursday, we should be back with tears part three. If all goes according to plan. Yeah. If it doesn't, that means something changed. Uh, There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Yes. Uh, we'll have to get into that. What, what's with all the teeth gnashing? I don't know. Uh, maybe we'll
0: get into that in part three. What does gnashing mean? What is the, like, w- what is it to gnash? To bite? To, like, grind your teeth? was
1: I was I just imagining it, yeah, just kind of, like, weeping and just, <laughs> you know? Um, I don't know? So perhaps we should explore that. Maybe, maybe there, there's some legs to that question.
0: Experts on gnashing, right in. Yeah. All right. Uh,
1: If you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you'll find them all in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed, which you can uh, find wherever you get your podcasts. We have core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays, Artifact on Wednesday, Listener Mail on Monday, Weird House Cinema on Friday. That's when we just uh, kick back and discuss a weird movie. And then on the weekend, we have a rerun of a core episode.
0: Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app.